This podcast is not safe for work and will feature movie spoilers. It will feature scenes described of a graphic nature. It will contain language which most listeners may find offensive. Welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. This is bonus episode 418. I'm your host Duncan McLeish. Welcome to the show. Up on this episode we are giving you interviews and reviews aplenty. London Fright Fest is currently happening as we speak and I am not there obviously. I'm still under the stairs up in Scotland and Arrow Video hooked me up with a couple of screeners to some movies and interviews with the directors behind them. So in this episode, you are going to hear an interview with the duo of Kat and Dima, who did Orchestrator of Storms, The Fantastic World of Jean Roland. It's a brand new doc that will be coming its way to the Arrow player real fucking soon. So we're going to be doing an interview with them and a review of the doc. And then after that, we will be doing an interview with Eric Pennycroft, who is the director of The Leech, the brand new seasonal horror movie, which will be making its way to the Arrow player at the end of the year. And you'll be getting a little review of that movie as well. Both will be non-spoilers, so don't worry if you're concerned that I may be spoiling details to a movie you haven't seen yet or don't have access to. Now, rather than get to all the usual stuff that we did at the start of the episode, suffice to say, there's one more episode left from the podcast Under the Stairs this week. It is an 88 Films Italian Collection series of reviews for Hitcher in the Dark, and it will be dropping tomorrow. Tomorrow on the Teapots Collective, you will also be getting where to begin with, which will drop this episode finally before things will kick back to normal scheduled broadcasting as of September. So that is your updates there. So let's get into it, shall we? You are going to hear a trailer for the movie The Orchestrator of Storms. Then I'll be returning with Kat Ellinger and Dima Bollin. And we'll be chatting about their movie. And then you'll be getting a review of that. Now after that, there is currently no trailer for The Leech. So we will be putting a little promo in there. An interview with Eric Pennycroft. And then jumping straight in to the review of that movie. We're going to be doing all that stuff on this episode right after this. Jean Rolin had the greatest passion ever in making films. He loved making films. He was very unhappy when he didn't make it. He had a passion for everything that he did in his life. I've always looked at him as one of the true, authentic, independent filmmakers in film history. His films were, I think, mainly about two things, dreams and memories, much more than being a typical horror filmmaker. Uh, Roland was a true outsider. He had a very unique personal vision. His films are very difficult to define in terms of genre. They're not strictly horror films, they're not strictly exploitation films. I always think of them as just Roland films. He made a wonderfully strange and poetic cinema located in castles and graveyards. And those castles and graveyards were inhabited by seductive female vampires who are either very energetic rule breakers or melancholy figures from a lost past. And welcome back, ladies and gents. So it is my privilege and pleasure at this time to introduce um, a, a wonderful duo behind a phenomenal documentary, which is, at the time of this recording, currently playing directly at Frightfest down in London um, and covering, a, well, hopefully after this documentary, covering a, a director that more people will now show an interest in. Um, the documentary itself is called Orchestrator of Storms, the fantastic world of Jean Roland. I'm joined by Kat and Dimmer. Um, I, I suppose we'll, we'll go around you both. Uh, Kat, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks for having us. 
that's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank um, you very much. So I suppose the first question, I don't know, I can't imagine that'll be the first one to ask you this, but what was it specifically about Jean Roland that got you interested in doing a documentary project on him? Uh, to either um, one of these. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, it, like, in my own sort of film writing, mm-hmm. it's a, he's a director I've always championed. Like, I cover a lot of Eurocult. And, um, and me and Dima have worked together for years just doing sort of feature acts and stuff. And I heard Arrow were going to be doing this stuff on the streaming channel. Mm-hmm. So just put in a pitch to Francesco Simeone, who was the head of production at the time, but he's now doing Radiance, yes. which is his own project. Yeah. So, and he accepted it. So it started as a smaller project. It was just going to be talking head, sort of contextualizing Roland, but then because it's us, it, it got completely out of control. <laughs> Similar thing happened with our Michael Reeves documentary a few years back. And um, Dima, like, how familiar with, were you with Roland's work before starting? Because I even, as someone who, I, I love European uh, cinema just in general, I always kind of feel like I know the obvious ones, but none of the deep dive stuff at all. Uh, were you kind of like that? Or are you kind of more uh, more involved with the kind of over on back catalogue? I think I was probably pretty involved with it from, from an early age. I mean, from, <clears throat> from when I was a teenager, uh, there was this great book called The Seal of Dracula, which had all sorts of really salacious images, you know, of, of naked women being whipped and, and, you know, blood dripping down their breasts and all that kind of stuff. It was a, it was a, it was a totally coming of age experience. And a lot of the images were from Roland's films. And that's how I first got to know him uh, long before I actually saw any of his films. So there was a sort of uh, mystique for me uh, and, f- and for my male friends as well. Mm-hmm. So when I first got to, to see his film, which is when VHS started coming out, they were like really bad dupes. Yeah. But, uh, but even but even with those, you know, it was something um, something really uncanny about his films that was different from 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 anyone else's. Um, what what was your question again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Also, sorry, my dog is very excited because he loves John Roland as well. So <laughs> I'm trying I to keep it. him quiet, but uh, he's. Uh... <laughs> I thought he loved me. <laughs> I suppose it's more like, but like, like, as he's, he's the sort of filmmaker that I imagine nowadays with you know um, kind of boutique labels being kind of more active and essentially doing the kind of hungry hippos gobbling up of as much um, titles they can, like getting more like almost more niche as it goes along, which benefits the you know the film viewer and the collector. But like in terms of his work, there's just I I always get a feeling that. Like with certain directors, you can you very readily and easily get like Bava for the longest time. You, you like you can maybe only get your hands on about five or six of his titles, but nowadays you can get your hands on loads of them. Ron always seems to be the guy who just has a, a number of films out there that you've either one never heard of or two never seen. So, like in terms of you coming into the you know the actual pro- process of making this documentary, um, how difficult is it to? kind of track down not only people that were involved in things how well is that actually documented like the movies you worked on the the cast that are involved is that in itself like an entire separate project too like something like yeah it was it was it was a huge job we were lucky that um i reached out to serge his son Hmm. quite early on and then we found uh veronique who's in the film who was his collaborator who worked with him up until his death she oversees his estate now Mm-hmm. Uh, but even just getting things like photographs and just it it was really difficult and we were dealing with French language as well so we had Jonathan Zarin who's our producer and DP on a few of the interviews who's actually he lives in the UK but he's French as well so mm-hmm. he was great 
he was great but there's so many people not around anymore yeah. and then on top of that like there are existing interviews with Roland a lot of them done in English language and he wasn't the best so a lot of them aren't that in depth and mm. um even his autobiography which we spent like months translating me scanning it page by page <laughs> um even in that I know and one reviewer said oh you don't hear much about the man but his entire biography was about his films and I yeah. think he was his films that yeah. is his legacy that's all there is but yeah it was really difficult just trying to find people track them down a lot of people that are in total obscure even finding Brigitte who now she's come out again because she's got a book that she's promoting yeah, yeah. even tracking down Brigitte was difficult so yeah it was it was a labor of love but a necessary one and there were more people we hoped to find but it was just so hard we ran out of time so um, but in terms of documenting his life, that's what I felt strongly about because mm. um, in recent years, there's been like a critical reassessment. You've had like essays and stuff on his work mm. that has tried to recontextualize it. And that's great. But nothing really about him, the person yeah. and what he was up against. And so it was important that almost everyone in, in the film, unless they're a specialist on very specific subjects, they either knew him or worked with him or were friends with him because that was the only way we could document it was through the people that are left behind so yeah it took a lot longer than we uh than we than we planned for but i i think it was worth it i think one of the yeah it's interesting oh sorry demo oh it's okay it's interesting that um i saw a review of this film that said that um uh, the film focuses uh, almost entirely on Roland's film life and uh, not at all on his uh, private family life. And that's true. And uh, what's interesting is that we we literally couldn't find anybody who would talk about his private life. Mm. And his autobiography uh, uh, doesn't either, in fact. It, it talks about his childhood. It talks a little bit about his mother because she, she was very influential. Yeah. But... It doesn't mention his wife. I mean, he got married at some point. Uh, it doesn't mention his children, mm -hmm. except in passing, except uh, in relation to them being in his films. Uh, his brother, uh, you know, I think one of his sons actually died um, in the early part of the century. Mm -hmm. and, but that never gets mentioned either. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think like from from checking it through as well, it, what, what kind of struck me because you always like imagine like the, almost perverse of these sort of movies being very much on the fringe of of filmmaking, and like he came like he came to prominence uh, or started to come to prominence during such a important time in French cinema, and then you see that he was essentially friends. You do like, he was a first name basis and friends with all these filmmakers that you know are synonymous with that time period in France but he would like almost not rebelling against it but just didn't have much of an interest in kind of conforming to cinema which in a weird way was kind of anti-conformist anyway um all that side of things I found like hugely fascinating that there were you know certainly opportunities there for him to kind of more toe the cinematic line of what was what was kind of popular, but like the, the fact he just had no interest in doing that at all, and you know had a, a vision of what he enjoyed to do, uh, and continued doing that, I, I found I found like absolutely incredible. And I think if you yeah. are if someone that you'll because you could, like I think can't mentioned it before, like you get these like on 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 Blu-rays or DVDs or whatever, you get you know you get like people that will do like video essays and stuff and you always kind of feel like you get a snapshot of things but the fact that in the case of this one you're going right back to the start and then you're charting his film career and then he's kind of almost his rediscovery by like a new generation of people like towards the end i i, I find like this is, is book ended really interesting how long does a a documentary like this with all the things you mentioned how long does something like that actually take to put together is it you know are we it talking took a, it took us a year a year, a year. Right? yeah um we'd originally planned to just do a shorter thing and it would have been wrapped up in i don't know five or six months but yeah. we were lucky with fram because he just said it's okay like if we need more time if you know um 
if if you want to carry on because I didn't want to just stop it there. Like I just kept just kept unearthing more stuff and then it just kept going on. So yeah, it was it was a year in in the making, um, a crazy year. <laughs> so did you when make I think this during? This time. Yeah, are you, are you were you making this during COVID then? Um, at the end of COVID, right. so it was like that, all that through last summer, and um, I think we started in the May, yeah. maybe. Um, but then we did have problems with, you know, interviewees catching COVID. We yeah. had people issues with travel restrictions, all sorts mm. of stuff going on. So it didn't completely impact us, but it did, you know, especially filming people as well, where yeah. restrictions were still in place. We had all that to put it like that was an extra factor and stuff like that so yeah even on top of covid which is <laughs> crazy uh we were determined not one of our talking heads got stuck in quarantine oh, for weeks <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and that put it all back so yeah yeah we had a lot of major obstacles doing this film it, mm -hmm. it 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 should have taken maybe three to four months to complete it if we were you know just working on it uh straight through but yeah. you know it took a year which is fine yeah I, I suppose... yeah even the music even the music was an issue because we couldn't use the original music because of the rights oh god and really? yeah so even that we had to get a whole all the soundtrack is like we had an original soundtrack composed um by a band who were also fans of Roland, so yeah. it just became like it's like this whole thing, challenging but but good in in a in a good way. So so it's um it's played a few festivals already over in the states. It's um at the time of recording just now, it's currently playing at uh, London Fright Fest. Um, what's the next steps? Has it got more festivals to do? Uh, when can people expect to see it on? I'm assuming it's going to the so. Arrow Player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it will be available from Arrow at some point. Yep. Obviously, we don't know what's happening with festivals yet because they're, you know, it's still we're still sort of looking at festivals. Mm. So as soon as it's done that, yeah, people will be able to see it more widely, and we're hoping for a physical release as well. Oh, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, 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 like I say, it's one of those things you get where I imagine, like I, I well, I imagine and hope that people are gonna check this out, and on the the end of that, it's gonna it's gonna spark more interest to to deep dive. I've now got a list of movies, um, just just from your, your documentary. <laughs> like, well, I need to see these. Um, <laughs> I also love the idea that, that it has that one particular movie where it, you know it's kind of like it's half porn, half. Um, half horror and it doesn't quite satisfy the horror fans and you know, it doesn't quite satisfy the porn fans and it sits and we always talk about things like horror comedies you know having that fine line I never thought of horror porn the same way so um... yeah there's like a whole horror porn thing in the 70s which is great but Roland's are just the weirdest of the absolute weird the recutting <laughs> of lips and blood the hardcore version is, is bonkers yeah and, and then you're like, is that actually so-and-so out of the film? Or is that a body double? You're like, there's a whole thing going on. But they are just so Roland that yeah. I can't imagine anyone going to the cinema to just get their rocks off. They must have been really confused yeah. as to what was going on. <laughs> so in, in, in terms of like facts that you knew and didn't know, what's probably the most surprising thing you found out about Roland during this project? I don't know, do you want to start this one, Dima? I, I'm trying to think. Um, For me, it was just realising well, how much he struggled. <clears throat> I, I never really, like the whole dialysis, going out and filming mm. on dialysis. Like, I knew he was ill at the end and people mention it. And, oh, he was very ill. And you don't really think much about it until you hear his friend saying he was on a stretcher shooting a film and I found that quite you know admirable in one way but also shocking that how you know how much he suffered yeah I think it was really sad at the end the fact he had no money his estate went bankrupt yeah. um it's just appalling so like right at the end even though he started to realize that people loved him he he didn't see what we're getting now and he never made any money out of it which is yeah. just so sad that that really did surprise me yeah <clears throat> yeah probably same for me um uh, veronique told me that um well she didn't tell me she uh, this was part of the interview which may or may not have 
gotten cut, but mm-hmm. she, she said that John was a uniter. He kind of united people. And I got the feeling that he was just one of those people, kind of like, you know, Andy Warhol, who created this this little universe around him with all these weird people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and it was his big family. And when he died, it was he left this big empty space and people just kind of drifted off um which which reminds me of my film teacher david Kleiler. he was um he, he was like that too he was mm-hmm. just uh, so enthusiastic about film and he had all these weird people around him including me yeah. uh and you know and when he when he died it was like you know uh three years ago it was like well just this uh, big empty space so so it was it was somewhat cathartic for me in that way i think um working on this film yeah because during the the documentary like you kind of mentioned like that there was like this kind of weird weird time in european cinema where you start to get these very 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 distinct kind of almost auteuristic voices starting to come through like a like a bava in Italy and obviously Jess Franco like in Spain uh, and Roland in France and then I, I think about it like, in terms of one of the things that just like instantly caught my attention um, when it came to your documentary was like I am like probably more familiar with those two directors and they are like they themselves are on completely different ends of the spectrum when it comes to their filmmaking and their, their, their subject matter but like even someone like a Jess Franco, I feel like is more known, like rightly or wrongly. I think, yeah, it's, it's I strange, think Jess, isn't it? I'm a huge fan of Jess. Yeah. So, but I think with Jess, he's had a lot more in recent years, especially Stephen Thrower's incredible two-volume book, oh, which yes. that after that book, we saw a lot more to do with Jess Franco, which is incredible. And also the work of David Gregory, who interviewed him so just just did so many amazing interviews with him over at Severin and mm-hmm. kind of documented that. So, but there was a time not that long ago, say about a decade ago, where being a Jess Franco fan or a John Roland fan was lonely. Yeah. It was lonely territory <laughs> because everyone you met, they'd be like, oh. And for some reason, I'd just meet people. The only film they'd seen of Roland's was Zombie Lake, which wasn't really his film. And they'd be yeah. like, oh, he's terrible. He's absolutely terrible. So it would get very, very lonely. Um, and that's all it is. I think if it wasn't for Nigel uh, Wingrove, who's in the film and Redemption, mm-hmm. uh, we really wanted to show how bloody difficult it was even to see these films in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Like They were so hard, hard to see, even though like Channel 4, there's a Pete Toombs. Um, yeah. who does Mondo Macabro he did actual he did this TV show called Erotica and they actually did a whole episode on on Jess and a whole episode on Roland mm-hmm. but that was about it you still couldn't get to the films unless you could get the Redemption VHS so we wanted to show that you know there were I meet people who went and they saw Fulci films in the early 80s mm-hmm. or they saw Barva at the cinema or even Jess Franco films at the cinema. Mm-hmm. But I rarely ever meet anyone who says the same about John Rolland. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in um, in The Lost Girls, John Rolland, but Mitch Davis tells a story about how he found them in a French video shop in French uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you couldn't even get them subtitled or anything. I think it was important to show that because we take it for granted now. You know, they've all had Blu-rays via yep. Kino and Redemption and, and here in the UK as well. So it's like, but even with that, people have not been quick to, I, I don't understand it. It just <laughs> gets this reputation. They're like, oh, it's just porn. Yeah. It, it's just rubbish. And so it's really important to show, actually, no, it's not. And this is, you can't take this for granted. This is like, his films were rarely seen even by hardcore film fans. It was only in the 90s that he was, quote unquote, discovered. Yeah. Which is shocking. Like yeah, in his yeah. native home, he was he was rejected by everyone, which is just awful. We tried to find French review. Even finding French reviews of his work was difficult. I know Dima went through some. I couldn't find a single one actually. Really? I, yeah. I I read about some reviews uh, of his films um, in his autobiography. Actually, he mentions maybe one or two mm-hmm. or three, but I couldn't find them. 
that's that's yeah. So bizarre. Like, I, I, it's just it's difficult to kind of wrap your head around. It's really annoying, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's when you're trying to find material. And you know, when you're trying to make a film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, like, I could understand if, like, it was like a, like it was a, a flash in the pan sort of career that you know, like, birthed maybe one or two movies, like, in obscurity and then disappeared, but. Yeah, we're talking four decades. Yeah, it's not as if if he just disappeared. He he seemed to be consistently active. And when he wasn't, he was trying to hustle to get the next thing kind of off the ground. Oh, he was was the quintessential indie filmmaker, you Mm -hmm. know, like like John Cassavetes, you know. Well, even like Orson Welles, who who spent like most of his life hustling for for, uh, money and like doing... All sorts of odd acting jobs to yeah. to to support his films. It's it's that kind of maverick spirit uh, that um, um, that oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's that maverick spirit that characterizes uh, people like Roland. Yeah, it's weird uh, how so, uh, yeah, it's weird how that sort of thing in a bygone era can be seen as kind of tragic, but nowadays it's seen as like that's what indie filmmakers should be doing, you know. Like you should be like, you like, like it's, it's, it's a weird thing like that. But I think as well on top of it, um, what what kind of stood out most to me overall in the documentary was that like you couldn't, and I hadn't noticed it until you like you start threading things together. You start doing the red web thing, you know, where you start threading all these different things. <laughs> it's just like the specific like repetition of particular themes and shots and ideas. Yeah. That I had never pieced together. I, I, I just always kind of assumed, all oh, right, the guy like kind of likes graveyards, so that's fine. But when you keep, like, when you start putting these scenes kind of throughout it and linking back, it's so bizarre. And then you get that line um, from from someone that attended the, the funeral and they're being filmed, and they're like, "It's so bizarre being in this cemetery, which you know is the one that he used." On yeah, that's Madeline, I think. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like it just like the fact the fact that it's hitting her at that point as well, as well as being the audience where you're like, this seems familiar. Oh, that's right, because it was filmed, and it's just like I like I said, I found everything about it just hugely fascinating. Um, and I think I think you both did a phenomenal job on it. I, like I genuinely Thank you. It was okay. awesome. Um, right, it's interesting. Know. You know, it's interesting to to. Um, uh, to revisit Roland's films after having listened to all those interviews of people, you know, talking about it. Yeah. It, it really, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, especially Madeline and uh, Virginie, you know, who really uh, analyze the hell out of them it's, it's, and, 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 and draw certain interesting parallels. It's it's really interesting. Well, I, I mean, I, I I had an absolute ball watching this. I thought it was I thought it was brilliant. I I can't wait for more eyes to get on it. And uh, yeah, when it when it makes its way to to the player, and certainly, I mean, we need to have a physical release because we just need to have a physical release. And you're with a um, uh, Arrow being the company they are. I can't I can't imagine they won't go that way at all. But in terms of, and you'll get this question a lot, and you're probably sick of it, but I need to ask it. Um, what's next? Uh, what, what are you working on next um, in the realm? What, is it going to be another doc? Or, uh, I don't know yet. No, we're still, yeah, we're still sort of figuring that out. I just started working with Fan Art Radiance. I know, it's very exciting. Uh, yeah. So that's been taking up my time. And Dima's working on another film that's not a film, like it's a, it's a whole other thing. It's nothing to do with. I'm getting into, fi- into fiction films, yes. Yeah, oh, so. Yeah, so we've got that going on, but I don't know. It's just waiting for the all these projects just seem to happen. Yeah, they just appear. So we're just waiting for the next one, the next one, next one to pop up. I don't know what it'll be yet, though. I'm, I'm sure it'll be hugely exciting when it does. And now I know that um, Kat, at least you're quite you're quite active on social media. Um, do, any social medias to plug at the end here that people can follow you on to see what you're working on next? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, yep. but I don't post that much. Um, also, you can come and see me on Patreon, <laughs> which, is, which is even better. Cat mm. Islanders Confessions of a Cine Slut. <laughs> best name ever. <laughs> Dimmer, are you on social media at all? Uh, only as a troll. Oh, yeah, he hates <laughs> social I, media. I don't really. <laughs> I struggle to navigate it, if I'm honest. Uh, like, I have someone else that does Twitter for me because if it's left to me, nothing happens. Um, 
Yeah, no, it's been an absolute privilege and pleasure chatting to you both. Um, I wish you all the success in the world with this documentary. It's, Thank you. It's a subject Thank matter you. that I I feel it did, you know it deserved. Like if you had went an extra half an hour on it, I would have watched it without even like without even back. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I Thank thought it was you. absolutely Thank brilliant. Um, have a great rest of your day, and uh, I hope to speak to you um, on your next project. Yeah, great interview. Thank you. Us. Thank you. Thank you, Duncan. Bye. Bye. And thanks very much to Kat Ellinger and Dima Bullen joining me for that interview. Such bloody nice people. They went beyond their allocated time to sit and chat to me. And yeah, I, I love it when that happens, when I get a chance to ask a few more questions and get a bit more involved with the process behind the documentary. So as it currently stands just now, this particular doc, The Orchestrator of Storms, does not have a release date that I'm aware of anyway on the Arrow player, but it is coming. So keep your eyes peeled for that. As you heard in the interview there, it's one of these things that really does chart the birth to the death of a director who I guarantee you know a few, but you don't know them all titles from a director who has such a unique voice. My thoughts on the documentary overall, and I don't want to go into spoiler detail at all because I want you to go and check it out, but like we do on these non-spoilers, we're talking about the stuff that I like, we're talking about the stuff that I don't like without the spoiler details, and then we, we assign it a good old grade here, is that it feels like fairly exhaustive. We, you're sitting with an almost two-hour documentary which charts the the initial upbringing of a, a, of a kid who very early in his life decides this is what I want to do. I want to make cinema. I want to make movies. And is influenced heavily by those around him. You know, the experiences he has with his unorthodox upbringing, the, the, the men that are brought into his mother's life that he's subjected to that have these very unique and almost bohemian views on how the world and art should be consumed and distributed and how that has this rolling effect into his life. The biggest things I took away from this documentary, great talking heads. Like, first and foremost, they managed to, and I know they were saying they were having a difficulty in tracking, like, certain people down, but they managed to pick great talking heads with a great deal of insight and like obviously knowledge, passion and reverence for the director himself. Not afraid to point out the the flaws and the man's um, obsession with cinema and the, the road that he was travelling, but at the same time happy to spend a bit of time and focus on those moments that really do solidify him as a very important voice in European horror cinema or just genre cinema in general. On top of that as well, I think it's paced really well. Will you spend enough time getting to know the child before he moves into the world of, of cinema? And as uh, as Kat mentioned in the interview, there just really isn't a great deal of information known about his personal life. So you have to juggle that in the context of what we can deliver and what we can't. What's interesting is it reminded me quite a bit of that Boris Karloff doc from last year except there was obviously a bit more information on, on Karloff and his personal life before he became an actor, and then it all kind of dried up because of how private he was as an individual, and you get a bit of that here. Uh, Roland obviously wanted, viewed and judged through his work rather than who he was as a person, and to me, that's something we've kind of lost. Nowadays, filmmakers are almost in, well, they're entrenched with who they are as a person over the art that they make for better or for worse is something that is fully conscious and at the forefront uh, and Roland never seemed to have that but never really gave much away either to allow him to be judged or consumed that way which I find hugely fascinating um, the doc as well is exhaustive in terms of how it covers its you know its look through the, the decades of the guy's work um, not afraid to turn its lens away from interviews discussing the porn that he ultimately would have to direct as a means to continue to direct movies, uh, which I also found hugely fascinating. Um, the score on it works really, really well, and the narration as well. Um, you get these amazing sound bites 
of you know someone translating from the the, the, the biography in French um, into English. These little clips, these snippets of the way that Roland sees himself, uh, the term itself, orchestrator of storms, being the way that he wanted him to himself to be as he became a filmmaker. I found that excellent. I I think this is one of these docs that is going to open some eyes. I think there's a lot of people out there that, like myself, know the the tried and tested roads of Roland's work, but don't know the, the kind of seedy underbelly or the more obscure out there. I didn't realise his 80s output was as prolific in terms of how many movies he was releasing as it was. I knew he was making movies into the 80s, but just not on that scale to the point that I now have a list of things that I'm desperate to go and check out. And you don't get that without, you know filmmakers who are genuinely interested in exploring the subject matter like you have with D-Man Cat and I think they've nailed it. I think they've nailed it against the confines of COVID, against the backdrop of not being able to track down all the voices and talking heads they wanted but on top of that as well with the amount of time that's passed and with so many people passed on I think they delivered something truly magical. I know they themselves have said that there's maybe been one or two online reviews that have criticised like the lack of personal information about Jean Roland that is out there. I, on the other hand, whilst I would love to do that, I don't think that is in any way a detriment to the work that's been done here. I think, if anything, that's freed up a bit of time to maybe not get lost in the weeds chatting about the family man away from the director because that's ultimately what this is doing here is shining a spotlight on a filmmaker who has went through one or two reappraisals of his back catalogue um, in recent times and probably will go through several more. And if this documentary helps spark that conversation or even allows people to comfortably um, pass a critical eye over those again or revisit titles or track down titles, then I think that's hugely important. That's what documentaries are supposed to do. They're supposed to give you information, um, whether biased or, or, or down the middle, and allow you, the audience, to make up your own mind about what you saw. And I think they've they've done it incredibly well, and it sits comfortably. So it sits so well within the, the Arrow catalogue, and one that this particular one will be one that I'll be pushing heavily when it makes the player, and I desperately want that physical release. Um, I think there's 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 something about owning titles like this that you can just pick off at any point, and I'll be using. I guarantee you, I'll be using this um, as a, as a bit of a repository of information the next time I do anything based on Roland, because it's it's just so well put together. Something that they should both be immensely proud of their work on. So yeah, uh, in terms of grades, I, I didn't really have anything that I disliked about this. I thought this worked incredibly well. In terms of grades, it's up there about one of the best docs I've seen in a while. It's sitting amongst, the thing is, it's sitting amongst a lot of these docs which are, well, let's see what the filming was like on it. Let's see what the filming was like and the story behind the Monster Squad, which is fine. But we've got featurettes and all the rest that exist out there already. This merits its existence this is let's take a look at someone who you may have heard of you may have heard of a couple of movies but you don't know shit about them and as a result of that i would give this a 4.5 out of 5 i think it's an absolutely phenomenal doc i think both cat and dima have nailed it and yeah i thought this was absolutely brilliant so 4.5 out of 5 for orchestrator of storms the fantastic world of jean roland I'm going to take a short break. You're going to get a promo when I return. There's another interview. I'll be sitting down with Eric Pennycroft, who has a brand new movie coming out later this year. It's just played today, the day of this recording and release, Fright Fest 2. What I saw on Twitter was a rapturous applause. Uh, it stars favourites of Podcasts Under the Stairs, Jeremy Gardner and Graham Skipper. And we're going to be uh, chatting to him about the leech right after this. This is a test of the emergency podcasting system. Listen to the Psychosemantic Podcast. Politics, movies, and political movies. Find us on Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, legionpodcasts.com. The Psychosemantic Podcast. 
and welcome back, ladies and gents. At this time, it is my distinct privilege and pleasure to introduce to the podcast under the stairs Eric Penikoff, who currently has a movie that is playing at Fright Fest this weekend um, and will be making its way to uh, platforms that people will be able to see towards the end of the year. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure to chat to you. So, um, so many questions about this one. Like, so many questions. Uh, I watched it two nights ago and had an absolute ball. Uh, a couple of the the reasons I think it's you know it, it just it made me smile is um, the casting. I think we need to kind of touch on that first. Um, it stars Graham Skipper, uh, Skipper who I'm a, a big fan of, and uh, Jeremy Gardner as well, who I've been kind of stockishly following his career since uh, the battery how did that process come around for casting you know had you like worked with those people before or how did it how did it come together well jeremy and taylor i had worked with on my first film graham i had not i, I you know i knew graham uh we lived in the same town we we knew each other a bit and but i'd always wanted to work with them and i'd always wanted to um put him in a role that I hadn't quite seen him in. I mean, he's definitely uh, no stranger to straight up action horror sci-fi. I mean, he was Herbert West when Stuart Gordon's reanimator musical. I mean, the guy has serious acting chops, has a very uh, interesting theater background that uh, we sort of delved into quite a bit. Very much a different sort of acting background than Jeremy has Mm -hmm. sort of the way that I've worked with actors. So it was really interesting to kind of bring people together that I've worked with before, but also someone that I'd not worked with and two people that have very different acting backgrounds and sort of throw them, you know, on set, uh, the way that these two characters are thrown into a house together. Yeah. The, so this is like maybe the first kind of Christmas horror movie or Christmas set horror movie that I can think of, which like doesn't follow the conventions that we expect from yeah, it's usually a supernatural story or it's a slasher killer or we've got all these tropes in place that our kind of Christmas era horror movies have to confine to. How did you come up with the approach in this one? Because it, it felt like you just kind of like like approached it from a completely different swing uh, entirely compared to everything else. Where did the ideas kind of genesis from? Well, it sort of started more with the traditional unwanted house guest <laughs> subgenre, films like uh, like Unlawful Entry, mm-hmm. Bad Influence, a lot of like 90s thrillers. And this was around the time when I was living in Los Angeles and I was sort of going down this rabbit hole of exploring squatters' rights and what sort of rights someone does have uh, if they are in your house for a certain amount of time mm-hmm. and how hard it can be to actually get rid of them even when you get you know, lawyers and the police involved or whatever. And that was sort of interesting and had me kind of going down the more thriller route. You know, then a bunch of things changed and the way that uh, the movie came about being made was uh, not in Los Angeles, but in a very snowy Midwestern landscape. So that sort of changed the setting and then all of a sudden this movie came about. And then, you know, the idea of the protagonist being a priest and what better time of yes. year to help someone <laughs> out than Christmas. So I, I, I will say that, um, you know, I, I love Christmas horror movies and I love Christmas comedies and you know, all of those things. But I think the way that I got there was sort of just like a sort of like breaking down this 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 idea that I had, which is typically how a lot of my movies come to be. It kind of starts with one idea and then I chip away at it and kind of find like something at the core of that. Yeah, I, I found it like um, I, I found just the, the setup really interesting. And you, you mentioned about squatters rights. There was a I don't know if you checked it out, but the documentary on Netflix, um, which covers uh, I think it's like Bad Neighbor or Bad Squ- I, I can't remember what it was, but it was absolutely terrifying to watch. Like like people can just you, you do a good deed for someone, and then before you know it, you you can lose your property to them. <laughs> like, it's oh, like okay. absolutely insane. <laughs> So, That's uh, the, the, the one documentary that I that I was quite inspired by that I had seen. Um, it's one that Draft House Films put out in 2013, I believe, called mm-hmm. The Overnighters. Oh, right, and it's, a, it's uh, not many people I know had seen it, but it's a very sort of uh, good-natured, mild-mannered uh, pastor with a family. So the pastor is married, takes in a bunch of people that are traveling to somewhere in the Midwest mm-hmm. who 
are coming there for work. But when these people show up from all around the country, there's no work to be had. They have no place to stay. And this guy slowly allows several people to stay not only on his property, but in his house at his church. And the I mean, that movie takes a turn that I did not see coming, <laughs> which was d definitely a, a bit of an inspiration for The Leech. So it's kind of a bastardized version of a documentary in some ways. Yeah, and you've already touched on it. Graham Skipper, like for all intents and purposes, the time of year it is, you know, it's the season of giving, goodwill to all men, and his character specifically is struggling with a, a kind of dwindling and diminished flock already, and he's putting a lot of work in, like a lot of time and a lot of craft um, into his sermons, and then is kind of he's confronted with a situation of. Like, you know, practicing what he's preaching and and being the you know being the help to someone who is homeless, and that person ultimately taking advantage, spiraling out. It, like, how difficult is it to get a balancing act between the humor in the movie, the you know the the just the the general antics, and at the same time the the kind of darkness that kind of starts to to work its way towards the end because to me watching it I think you got the, the balance brilliant because you can feel it ramping up as you go along and then ultimately the, the, the end being as it is, is is something which is you know very, very stark in comparison to the nature of the movie at the beginning how, how fine is that balancing act from a writing and then filming point of view it's definitely a fine balance to walk you know especially in the writing I think you know the, the humour really comes from being an outsider watching a situation that maybe many of us have been in in yeah. one way or another whether it's the the cousin who's overstayed their welcome a family member who's stuck around a little bit too long i mean those situations that we've all been in are very frustrating and not funny when we're in them yeah. but you know you tell a couple buddies at the bar about what's going on they're gonna laugh i mean to them it's gonna be funny because you know if you've seen you know national lampoons or any of those <laughs> yeah the christmas vacation we all know that those situations are real yeah they're difficult, but they are funny. So I think that's where the humor comes from this. And it is, you know, for the first half of the film played, played pretty straight as just the unwelcome house guests. Mm -hmm. Only in this case, the, uh, the proprietor of the house wants the guests to be around. Um, and then when it takes that turn, I, I guess really the turn that it takes with not to spoil anything, but when, when David decides that even though things have gone too far and he knows things have gone too far, he refuses to give up. And I think that that decision there is very much a product of uh, having very strong beliefs and not wanting to give up on others, but also not wanting to give up on yourself for giving up on others. I think that's where the religious aspect of it sort of becomes the driving factor for the rest of the movie, where the first half really is something that maybe any of us could see ourselves doing to someone yeah. if we if we had that sort of kindness in our heart, not just a pastor. Yeah, and it, it totally plays with the character as well. That's what I loved about it. It's like those small attentions to details and characters, I think, elevate movies. And the fact that you, like, you you know this guy is like is is trying everything he has, like, right from the off, right when you see him speaking to essentially an empty church, and you see how much time he spends at night writing these sermons and newsletters. He's checking the engagement of these newsletters, and no one's reading them. Uh, but he's still, you know, he's still dedicated to that. I think, I think it's really great. Um, in terms of kind of crafting everything together, how long a process is it from kind of final script, casting, filming to getting the movie out? This one happened very quickly because by the time I realized that we could make it around Christmas time mm. with the cast that I had in mind, I think I wrote the script in August of 2020. And we were filming by January of 2021. Oh wow! Right, yeah. And I've 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 never really worked that fast. And I think even before I finished the script, once I realized where the script was going and how Graham could fit into it, and Jeremy and Rigo and Taylor, I think I pretty much reached out to all of them as I was writing and being like, "Hey, you know, the wheels are moving on this. Uh, winter is coming up. There's only a small window of time that." You know, we're, we're likely to have snow or to have this look like a Christmas movie. So I'm going to move fast. And are you ready? Uh, now, having worked in both scenarios of like something with a kind of short time window from writing to filming and doing something over a longer period of time, do you have a preference or is it kind of, well, you, you just need to be, you need to be fluid in these situations? You know, I like working fast. I do like not having a, a gap between writing something and shooting something, but I do like having 
turnaround time yeah. between movies. Um, at least in my experience so far, I'm not someone who can wrap a movie and just go right into the next one. I need I need time to decompress, not even just for writing, but just to recoup, you know, but I'm also the producer of these movies. I'm delivering yeah. these movies through post-production and working with distribution. So even when the film is, you know, finished, it's not really finished <laughs> quite yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did the how did the relationship with Arrow Video come up then? Well, you know, I had met Arrow at the first Fright Fest I ever went to, which was in 2019 with my first film, Sadistic Intentions. And I had been speaking to them. <clears throat> you know, there was, I think they had a little bit of interest in that film at the time. They were also just on the cusp of putting out After Midnight. Uh, that yeah. Jeremy had just done. So there was definitely a lot of Jeremy Gardner in their universe. Um, and I don't know whether that was a reason or not, but I, I think we just had formed a nice relationship and I kept in touch with them, certainly as they were building out the, the slate on the, on the Arrow player. And, you know, when this film came around, they were one of the first people I reached out to and said, hey, we uh, we made this crazy little movie <laughs> in quarantine in the snow. <laughs> I suppose that's the other thing as well, like that tight time scale plus being hit with what we all now fully know is maybe the most exceptional circumstances ever. Did that push towards a smaller kind of on-set crew or you know like does that and does that affect your writing process when you're like that listen if i really want this movie done i need limited actors i need or as a case once again that it just kind of turned out that way yeah you know jeremy and i were joking you know because him, him and i make these small movies mm -hmm. with not many characters and you know a couple locations and we're laughing about how you know the whole world is about to have to catch up to what we've been yeah. doing before covid <laughs> um so you know I, I i felt comfortable my first film was also you know fundamentally three characters in one location so covid or no covid is, is the type of movie that I've, I've been interested in making but certainly with that you know we were there were 10 of us total a oh, crew okay. of six cast of four no one in no one out you know my first movie was small as well but we did have 10 or 15 people at that point but yeah this was very very contained you know on the weekends we pretty much just sat around the same location and watched movies and mm -hmm. drank and hung out. There wasn't really much to do, let alone with just the time of year and how nasty it was outside. Um, but yeah, this is very much a, a COVID production in that way. And, and I think, you know, this is the first time that many of us had seen anyone, let alone yeah. film friends in a while. So I think just the fact that we got there safe, we were in the place together. You know, uh, we had the script, ideas were coming. There was just, there was nothing that was kind of too crazy or too far to do. I, I think of a, a big part of this movie turning out the way that it did is just as a result of people who want to be creative locked in a house together and just kind of throwing everything at the kitchen sink. Yeah, because you, you, once again, you're in a position where you're, your kind of two main male leads anyway are also filmmakers so like they, they come from an indie filmmaking background is that does that kind of pull uh, more of the creative juices for ideas coming in or does that actually have challenges itself in that you know you, you might be having conversations where someone says, well I, I might i might have done it this way uh which puts doubt in your mind or I, I, is that is that a double-edged sword or is that just to the benefit of the project I think it's always to the benefit of the project. I mean, I can think of a couple times where just because of the nature of the location and kind of how strange the interior was laid out, there were a couple times where it was like, ah, you know, struggling to kind of figure out how we can block this. Um, but outside of that, you know, they're, maybe they've done it more than I've noticed, but they're, they're just so intuitive of as actors. Yeah, they really, really know. I mean, this the, the two backgrounds they come from. It was so fascinating to see them collaborate and come up with ideas between the two of them um, the way that they would play scenes so yeah I, I think more than just being directors or more than just being actors it's just everyone there is just these creative entities that have just been you know locked away for months and were just ready to make something this yeah. just kind of became like a powder keg of creativity and um, so in terms of where you are now so the the movie's out on the festival run um, I think it's, it's already done at least one, hasn't it? It's done Chattanooga, I think. Yep, it's played the Chattanooga Film Festival and it's played Popcorn Frights so far. Yep, um, you're going through Fright Fest this weekend, which will be incredible. Huge audience there for that. Uh, what's the rest of the plans before it, it starts making its way to 
the the adult player uh, towards the end of the year is it playing many more festivals before or is it still going to be doing festival runs while it's streaming it has a couple more that are for sure there's a few that we're still waiting to hear about but pretty much the festival run will go through i think the last one we have planned is maybe early november so i would say people have a chance to catch it still through the month of october nice nice yeah. um and as for yourself um you know you're going to get this question because you'll get a hundred times today uh what, what's next i don't know i gotta figure that out <laughs> uh i've always got you know I, I have this uh this track record of coming up with a couple movies between each movie that never get made so yeah. if i if i stick that course there's probably two more scripts that i'll write that won't happen and then i'll you know get the third one to go um do you have any socials or anything like that you want to pimp at the end of this interview here anywhere people can check you i don't know if you use twitter or instagram or, or anything like that at all yep twitter instagram just search my name eric pennycoff i'm the only one that i know of excellent eric it's been an absolute pleasure chanty i hope that i know i know for a fact know what the fright fest crowd is like it's going to bring the house down they're going to have an absolute riot with it uh, oh, but I yeah, can't wait. I wish you all the success with the movie and I look forward to chatting to you down the road. Great, thank you. Thank Talk you. And a massive thanks to Eric for joining me on the show to discuss The Leech. Now, this is played Fright Fest 2D, uh, making it its, I believe, European premiere. And uh, according to Twitter, it did really well. A lot of people raving about it, and rightly so. Um, the movie itself, uh, written and directed by Eric, and stars Jeremy Gardner, Graham Skipper, Taylor Zadutke, and uh, Rigo Gary or Girari, or I don't know how you pronounce it. I apologise. Uh, my pronunciation is pretty bad. I am Scottish after all. Uh, the synopsis is listed on IMDb as the devout priest welcomes a struggling couple into his house at Christmas time. What begins as a simple act of kindness quickly becomes the ultimate test of faith once the sanctity of its home is jeopardised. Um, Non-spoiler review for this one. And Eric gave us a great amount of background and detail to the movie overall. And the process behind it. This movie really lives or dies on its performances and because we're doing non-spoiler reviews we'll kind of touch on what I really liked about the movie, what I didn't like about the movie and then assign it a grade at the end, giving away no spoiler details. But it does, this one requires great performances and Gardner and Skipper are fucking awesome off each other, they're really 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 good. Jeremy Gardner playing like pure good old fashioned white trash in a way which he just seems to be able to pull at his ass whenever he wants. Um, and that's to take nothing away from the character of Lexi, played by Taylor, who's also fucking phenomenal. Uh, Graham Skipper, I mean, this guy, every movie, he just does something a little bit different and just makes me kind of love him a little bit more. His performance as Father David is great, for lack of a better word. Uh, you follow through the, the kind of the piousness and the, the struggle that he has, the mania, and then towards the, the inevitable kind of collapse of the psyche. And his character is constantly challenged, and you can see in his face the way he's trying to put like a good spin on things. I thought the performances worked incredibly well, but only as good as the script behind them. The script is very, very, very funny, very witty, and then it, it not scared to go dark, at the drop of a hat, which it does do you know, several times in the movie. It really pushes things out there. It's paced really well. I mean, the movie's under an hour and 25 minutes in length. You take off the the credits either side, you're probably sitting close to like a, a, an hour and, and 17. And that works to its benefit because ultimately what you're getting here is just enough of something without it going too overboard or at the same time, it feels like it's fulfilled the story in a nice neat package without overstaying its welcome very much like the house guests in the movie. So it, it, it has a great like emphasis on its pacing um, and makes it feel effortless. On top of that as well, I think the, the lighting and the effects are brilliant in this one. Obviously the acting is the prominent effect here and that it's, it's utilised very, very, very smartly um, with, with just different kinds of performances butting against each other in the best possible way just like adding to waves of kind of if you're me anxiety but just obnoxious awkwardness um in a kind of effortless fashion 
as well. I think the way it goes towards the end, and obviously can't give details, it finishes super strong. And not like, kind of not the way I thought it was going to go. Even throughout the movie, it kept me guessing, which is brilliant because you get a bit jaded and long on the tooth the longer you exist on this planet watching horror movies. You kind of get that feeling that you've seen everything, been everywhere, done everything, um, bought the t-shirt. And this movie didn't do that. It kept me going all the way through in a way that I, I, I genuinely thought was handled really, really well. Um, I don't really... This is another one that I don't necessarily have any negatives about. I think maybe if you're not into the movie's humour, those elements might drag down quite a bit for you. But like I say, I, I, I enjoyed them. I think if you're looking for something a bit more linear, then maybe the movie doesn't deliver that it does leave a bit to well did certain things happen did they not happen once again not an element that i would complain about something that i enjoy in the movies that i watch so it's more a question of they're not negatives for me but they might be negatives for you i think it's got a wickedly fun score um like i said before great performances good visual effects great lighting great script and it's nice, neat, and it's like a nice one-two punch. This is the sort of movie that's going to do great on the Arrow player. And it's going to be landing just before Christmas as well, just in time for you to watch it and add it to your Christmas rotation. The thing about it is it doesn't feel like any other Christmas horror movie I've ever seen, which is like an instant tick because I feel with a lot of those movies, I've kind of fucking seen them before. So this one doesn't feel like that in any way. So yes, it's an immensely positive review for this one. Both of them get that. Uh, in terms of grades, I give this one a thumping 4 out of 5. I think it, it delivers exactly what you want. And it's one that like is begging for rewatch. This is one I could easily slip in to my, you know, like end of year rotation of watching movies in December and have a ball with it. And I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see what Eric comes with next. He obviously says he likes to take a bit of time in between projects, but... I think, especially him working with Jeremy Gardner, and I'd seen his previous feature with Jeremy, um, I think there's something there. And that is a kind of fruitful partnership of director-actor and the, the, the chick that plays um, Lexi as well, Taylor. I think there's, a, there's something kind of cool going on there that I would love to see that relationship continue. Um, and get Graham Skipper involved. Graham Skipper, honestly, is a guy who consistently knocks it out of the park and I still think people are sleeping on him as an actor. So hopefully, once again, this gets more eyes on him and we get to see more of him moving onwards as well. So yeah, a 4 out of 5 for The Leech. I'm going to take my final break of this episode. When I return, I'm closing out the show and I'm doing it right after this. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. you've been listening to the podcast under the stairs this has been bonus episode 418 this has been a review of orchestrator of storms with a interview with directors kat and dima and then a interview with eric pinnacoff who has just released the leech which we also did a non-spoiler review of a massive thanks to the pr team at fetch and Arrow for supplying me the screeners. There is another movie that they have supplied me a screener for. I don't believe I'm getting an interview with the directors of that one, and I'll be aiming to put out that review in just about a week's time, so keep your eyes peeled for that as well. A massive thanks to my guests for coming on and chatting about the movies, and hopefully we'll have them back on the show somewhere down the line. There's a multitude of ways to check out this show. Wherever you're listening to us right now, hit subscribe. That way you get the shows as and when they drop and access to the entire back catalogue of Teapots content. Please do not stop there, ladies and gents. We have a sister feed called the Teapots Collective. Over there you get shows like Where To Begin With, Opera Omnia, Doing The Nasty and Chronicle with links to all their archive episodes as well. Supporting those shows and supporting myself by supporting and subscribing is... Uh, is the only way to do things. Subscribe and support are essentially the same thing. If you subscribe to my feed, you're supporting me. So please do that. There is, of course, other ways to check out this show. 
uh, you can go straight to our website teapotscast.com where links to everything I do is there as well as to a fun entertainment booze based show called Jaws is Shite and other regrettable outbursts that show can be exclusively found on teapotscast.com if you're on Facebook and you want to interact with me over there facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash teapotscast will get you the podcast under the Sears Facebook group page the Teapots Collective is a page where I post nothing but the shows that I'm releasing and it can be found at facebook.com forward slash teapotscast. And finally, if you want to get into the weeds with some weird news content from around the world, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash regrettable pod will get you the lads at Jaws's Shite and other regrettable outbursts. If you hate Facebook and you want to interact with me on the twin prongs of social media sexiness, Instagram and Twitter, both can be followed at TeapotsCast. The podcast under the stairs will return for you tomorrow. It's 88 Films Italian Collection Time. We're doing Hitcher in the Dark. That is the 70... Well, we're on 72nd, 71st, 72nd uh, movie on that collection. One of those two. One of those numbers is right. The other one is totally wrong. And yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting to that one for you tomorrow. So until then, wherever you are, what the time zone is and whatever you're up to in this big bad world of ours, please take care of yourselves out there. This is Duncan McLeish broadcasting live from under the stairs and I am signing off. <laughs>